Welcome to the Modern Mommy Dog Podcast. I'm Dr. Whitney Caceres. I'm a full-time pediatrician and a full-time modern mom. I speak and write about equipping mamas to raise resilient, healthy children and to invest in their own social-emotional health along the way. Each week, we'll give you the practical tools you need to win at parenting without losing yourself. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Modern Mommy Doc podcast. Today, we have something a little different for you, which I'm I'm kind of stoked on. So it, today, we're going to be chatting about science. And you guys know that normally we sit here and talk about like all the ooey gooey and the feelings and the kids and all that. And today, we're talking about science, 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 which is the other part of my brain. But we're talking about how science relates to mothering and to kids and to childhood development. So I want to give a big welcome to Erin O'Connor. She is a professor at NYU and founder of Scientific Mommy. Welcome. Thank you so much. And I love that you use the term stoked. (laughs) (laughs) I am a child of the 80s, 90s. So, you know, my husband actually the other day was joking with me because I'm a huge fan of like Demi Lovato, Justin Bieber music. And he's like, you should have been born 10 years later. Like you listen to music that people are more. I was like, no, 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 no. That's still like my kind of music though. It's pop. It's like Britney. It's all those people. So (laughs) stoked is definitely in my repertoire. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Okay. So Tell us all about Scientific Mommy, because when I found you guys, I was just blown away by the cool research you guys are doing. Thank you very much. So um, I founded it with Robin Newhouse, who uh, we work together at NYU as well. And it's kind of been like a decade in the making, because uh, when I was pregnant with my first daughter, I was sort of re- you know reading the popular stuff about parenting and trying to figure it all out. Mm-hmm. And some of it was seemed really sensationalized and I was getting anxious about becoming a parent and I had taught about this stuff for years. I'd done research on it and it really sort of bothered me that if I hadn't had that background, I think I would have been an extremely anxious, expectant and new parent. So really wanted to have some venue to talk about the valid research that's been being done on parenting and pregnancy and all these, you know, really important topics, which I think because we tend to be anxious around them. Sometimes they are sensationalized in a way that just doesn't help in the long run. So yeah. it took a while to come to fruition, but. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's really true. And actually it's, it's really interesting to me, even in my clinic, you know, uh, there are so many parents that are understandably anxious and there's so much chatter out there. There's so much information from people who, actually aren't experts, but kind of present themselves that way. Um, There's so many different theories and approaches and uh, people are so polarized as to what they think is right and what they think is wrong. But a lot of it's not based off actual evidence. It's just based off kind of what their Google feed is telling them or what their Instagram algorithm is telling them. Right. So it's hard. It can be difficult. Yes. And there's, you're so right. It's so polarizing. There's Mm -hmm. either do this or do that. Right. Right. You know, like 
breastfeeding's good, breastfeeding's bad. Like it's not like a middle ground where I think most of us live. <laughs> yeah, totally. So tell me how scientific mommy works for people who aren't familiar with it. Because on your website, you even have a section that's like, you have a question about X? We can find a study or we can do a study on that. So that's, I mean, that's mind blowing. Tell me, tell me about it. Well, I love that, by the way, like when people send their questions in, because, you know, it sort of also gives you an idea of what people are really thinking about in parenting. Uh, you know, sometimes it's easy to, as your kids get older, get a little bit out of touch with some of this stuff. So I love that when people actually ask us questions. But so because I run a research lab as well as I guess my my main uh, <laughs> job at the moment. Your main gig. <laughs> my main gig, exactly. <laughs> we have access to so many resources uh, through NYU. So research that I've done with colleagues as well as all these great databases out there that have peer-reviewed, valid, um, evidence-based you know, suggestions, different studies. So that really allows us to get all this different information from different resources, as well as all my wonderful colleagues at NYU have really pitched in a lot too to help me get this together. <laughs> yeah, and so can anyone come on and ask you a question in there? Like any lay person could come on or do you work mostly with schools or organizations? How does it work anyone. in that regard? Anyone. Yeah. <laughs> wow, cool. So listeners, you guys can go on right now and ask a question of scientific mommy. What are some of the most common questions that you get? Sleep. Sleep is a big one, yeah. uh, especially, you know, that first year. Uh, and again, a topic that I think people are very polarized about. And it tends to be, you know, if either you sleep train or you don't sleep train. And there's a lot of research out there showing there are many different ways <laughs> that we can deal with, you know, the sleep issue. And whatever really is most comfortable for us is what's often best for the child, right? So if we're stressed and anxious about sleep trade or not sleep training, and we're doing that with our child, it's going to come out, right? The kids pick yeah. up on so much when at such a young age. So that's a really popular one. Um, attachment research, which again is related to, I think, sleep training is this idea of, you know, how do I make sure my child's secure in those first years with me? Uh, outside care, that's, mm -hmm. and, I, and that's sort of what actually, when I was a doctoral student years and years ago, got me interested in doing this was there was so much research out there saying that childcare was fine, that, you know, a high quality preschool experience was a good thing. Mm -hmm. And yet <laughs> there was actually, um, I worked on the NICHD study of early childcare and youth development, which showed all these positive effects of high quality. And yet somehow in the popular press, they actually cited that study a few times saying, that somehow outside care was not good in the first couple of years. So that really sort of started me on this whole <laughs> kick to get evidence-based work out there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree because the, all of those, both of those topics are, when it comes down to it about guilt that parents feel or about stress that parents feel about not doing right by their kids, about damaging them in some way, right? You know, the sleep training debate, and we're not going to get into that right now, you know, about like what's right or what's wrong. But the, the sleep training debate, it comes down to, I don't want to hurt my kids, which is such an understandable fear. The childcare debate comes down to, am I damaging my kids by dropping them off with somebody else or having someone else care for them as opposed to me being the only person who... Who, who cares for them. We're going to talk mostly about independent play for kids today, but I would love you to touch just briefly, like give me like the high level on the childcare thing. Um, because I bet that a couple of people would love to just hear the value of having other people care for your kids, how, yes. how that can be really helpful for our kids. Well, there's so much research too. When you look at, you know, even having 
several, like a grandparent and parent, because people have different mm -hmm. styles in the real world, right? We interact with people with all different types of styles of communicating, of, you know, interacting. And from a young age, if your child has experienced several caregivers, they're learning sort of those nuances of social interaction. And then if they're in a group setting, they're learning how to interact with peers and they're getting exposure to maybe, a, you know, some peer interactions they wouldn't get if they were at home most of the time. So there are multiple reasons why outside care is not a bad thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll say this too. I mean, my nanny who was with us for the first five years, now my kids are both in, you know, either elementary school or in preschool. Um, but who was with us uh, the vast majority of the time. And we did a variety of things. We did different love types of care, but she's with us the most. I mean, she taught me so much too, yeah. as a parent, like being able to see her tactics with my kids because she wasn't as invested as I was in my kids. So I felt like sometimes she was actually able to be a little more hard line than I was, you know, in the very beginning. And I learned from that. And then I think the other thing that really, um, taught me a lot and I try to talk to other parents about is parents will get really uh, upset or feel bad about this idea that their kids will maybe be like picky eaters at home or have some more behavioral issues at home, but then they do amazing at school or in their childcare settings. And, and so I actually really use that with parents to be like, this is not all about you, you know, <laughs> some of this is just about if you're safe and secure in your own home situation, then sometimes you're going to like let loose a little bit and your and your and your kids are able to actually kind of hold the kids together when they're in school or with another person. And so I always actually found that super reassuring um, with families about the fact that kids can sometimes act differently in different settings and with different caregivers. Yes. And I mean, there, we could go on and on about this, but that's why, you know, in the, in the research world, like parent report and teacher reports are often so different, yeah. whereas, you know, in, in theory, they should be similar, but it's, it is true. There's so much work out there showing that when children are secure at home, they kind of like let it all out, which can be a little challenging as a parent, but mm -hmm. <laughs> it's ultimately actually a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. All right. So let's talk about the topic du jour, which is how to foster independent play for our kids, the value of independent play for our kids. You know, COVID has fundamentally changed daily life for families. We have so many families and working moms in particular who are at home doing their work and then also with their kids by their side. And a lot of preschools and childcare centers are still struggling to reopen and some families are deciding to hold off on sending their kids back to school and they're kind of navigating that. And so what does that all mean for, for play for kids? Well, I think sort of the idea of independent play too, like matches with, I love your podcast about how you kind of focus on like caregiver mental health and well-being as well as child caregiver mm -hmm. or child mental health and well-being. And I think independent play kind of connects those two in many ways because it allows the caregiver to have a little time to do whatever you need to do. Yes. Sit down for a moment. Yeah. Right? Take a breath. Take a breath. <laughs> <laughs> and it gives kids the space to create their own sort of environment, even by observing children in their independent play too. We can learn a lot about what's going on in terms of their emotions, their experiences with things like COVID, because they can you know, sort of switch the character that they're playing, right? So if they're playing alone, but they're in this world where there are multiple different characters, they have to mm -hmm. meet those char 
characters. So they have to learn how to sort of change perspective uh, mm-hmm. in their play. And with by setting aside a certain amount of time for independent play, you're also teaching children self-regulation skills. Like if they know that this is their time for independent play and you're doing whatever you've said you're going to do, then it's also teaching children sort of that ability to entertain themselves Mm -hmm. (laughs) for a certain amount of time. And I think before COVID, boredom was sort of this like big evil thing. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Whereas there's so much work showing that actually some amount of boredom is a good thing. Uh, It forces kids to sort of figure things out a little bit and how to find interest on their own and, independent play allows all of that and it might look different at different ages right you know maybe your child is really young they're not going to be engaged in all this pretend play but they're playing with a toy that they really love Mm -hmm. and they're sort of learning how to regulate through this other toy or object so there's so many benefits to both collaborative and independent play which i think have been really highlighted in the pandemic um you know, there's very little sort of research out there, right, uh, yet about the impacts because we're still in it. <laughs> but, you know, the studies that have come out have shown that children are engaging in so much more collaborative play, actually, with parents than they have before because we're all home. <laughs> and mm-hmm. also independent play because of this idea of we're forced to often balance work and having our kids at home. and But that these things are, you know, if there's any silver lining in it, really good uh, that there are these opportunities for kids to really express themselves. And so much of the play research is showing, right, that there's actually a biological underpinning to this, that play is a huge stress reliever for children. It's it's their way of communicating what they might not say as their own expressions of some emotion, but they can do that through play. It's like that kind of one step removed. And they've shown right, cortisol, stress hormone levels decrease um, when children are playing. And, I think it's kind of coming more to the forefront now that everyone's observing it themselves. Yeah. Okay. So there's a couple things coming up for me as you, as you talk about this, I am thinking about my own experience and I'm thinking about the experience of pretty much every mom that I see in clinic who is with you right now. They're going, yes, I love the idea of independent play for my kids. Please let my kids have more independent play. And in fact, I need them to have more independent play because I have this zoom meeting I'm supposed to be on. And what I hear them saying is, I actually am finding it even harder to have my kids play independently for longer periods of time because they maybe have so much more screen time or because they're with me all day long and it's hard to make that transition off. So how do I help my child to be more independent in their play? Is there research around that about things we can do to foster independent play in our kids? Yeah, so I think you bring up a really good point about, and we can talk a little bit more about this, but this, the whole screen time, like what type of environment we're providing our kids and mm-hmm. often independent play is fostered in a more sort of calm, quiet environment where mm-hmm. there are distractions, uh, which totally makes sense, right? I feel like as adults, we often work in an environment where we can't handle distraction, but then we expect our kids to sort of be able to handle it, which is just, yeah. you know, it's funny, right? I think we all do it, but... Yeah. <laughs> So really, you know, a quiet, often environment, not having too many, uh, which I'm guilty of as a parent, but not having too many toys and options out there for them, mm-hmm. uh, because that in and of itself is distracting. Um, you know, there's been a couple studies done where they look at preschoolers or toddlers uh, with, you know, 16 toys versus four toys, and the children are much more likely to be 
you know, focus to play independently for longer periods of time when there are fewer toys. Because uh, mm -hmm. it's, again, this whole idea of a distraction, right? That's, you know, I, I find like it's hard to be like on email, also on the phone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, I, I want to I wanna also say something about the screen time thing. And you just correct me. If there's some research that's not in line with what I'm saying, then I always want to be corrected on that. But I, I think talking with enough experts that I, that I got this part. So I want to tell our listeners, you know, um, this idea of like your kids are having a harder time being off the screens because they're on it more or they're having a hard time playing quietly because it's hardly ever quiet and calm. You know, there is this like chicken and egg effect that absolutely happens in families and in houses. And I am so guilty of it too. And I go through, it's like a drug rehab center in my house, you know, like 25% of the time. So we will get in these jags where, because I have to do multiple, you know, meetings or I have things that I need my kids to be quiet because it's an important thing I got to focus on that I'll let my kids do more screen time. And then I find, and you guys, I'm, I know you guys can feel this in your bodies when your kids do this, where they start to be like, first thing in the morning, they go, can I have my screen time now? And you're like, what, what, no. And then screen time, I need screen time. Yesterday, my daughter had a full on tantrum. She was spitting at me in the car because I told her, baby, we're on a detox, we're going on detox. Okay, we're going on detox, you get one hour during the middle of the week on Wednesdays when you come to my office and you have to wait for me to finish seeing patients before we go home. And I need you to not come distract me and see the COVID patients with me. Yeah. And then we're doing Friday night. And if you want to watch something independent from us as a family, you're more than welcome to for those two hours. Yeah. And she lost her mind. She's like, I need screen time. And I know that's just because over the past couple of weeks, I've been month, I'm two months, I've been more lax than I normally am because I've had stuff going on, which we can have compassion for ourselves as parents about that. I'm, I'm not saying this to have a guilt trip on anybody, but the reality is sometimes you do have to like cut off the drug yeah. in order to be able to have your kids play independently without having to be distracted by a screen, which makes it harder for them to play independently. Yeah. Is that fair, Erin? That is very fair. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I think to your point, too, that this whole guilt, uh, as you were saying, like, mm -hmm. I feel like it all goes back to parenting guilt. Also, you know, a lot of the research that's been done on screen time was sort of pre all this. So I think it might also be like the type of screen time kids get. Yeah. It, oh, there's so many factors with it. So um, I, yes, we have to take the guilt out. We've all done it. <laughs> It is time to run, not walk, to your bookstore or have your fingers do whatever is the equivalent of running to the Amazon store, so online, to purchase our new book. It's called The Working Mom Blueprint, Winning at Parenting Without Losing Yourself. It is a labor of love. I'm so excited to deliver this book baby to you and to help you really feel like you are winning at parenting without losing yourself, mama. If you want to also check it out at the library. It's there. Borrow it from a friend. However, I just want you to get this solid information so you can start thriving, not just surviving in motherhood. And, and I think, you know, um, it's okay too, right? As you're trying to like wean people 
off of the cocaine here. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's fine too to be like, you can do a podcast, you can do a coloring yeah. on your device, you know what I mean? Like, maybe more active interaction with your screen than passive. And then we knit down, you know, that way too. Um, and everybody's kid is different. I know that um, one of my children takes that fine to do like weaning and the other one would be just like, finding Netflix when I walk away. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So collaborative play tell me actually let's just define collaborative play first of all because I think independent play people get that they picture like their kid you know drawing quietly in a corner or playing with their dolls by themselves yeah. but what does collaborative play mean well so I think you know there are several definitions but the most sort of you know umbrella term is really mm -hmm. interacting around a common thing right so whether it's you're playing with a you're, you're doing a puzzle together, or you're doing Legos, or if it's like this whole pretend universe that your child has created, that you're really engaging with them and allowing them to sort of take the lead uh, mm -hmm. when we're thinking about caregiver child collaborative play. Because one of the really huge benefits of collaborative play is this idea that children are able to somewhat control their environment, right? Especially mm -hmm. in this whole world of COVID. And because that's so important to children, right? And that's something mm -hmm. that doesn't feel like any of us have a lot of these days. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no control. Yeah, and um, I think the charge probably for all of us, I don't know if you find this too, Erin, in your, in your household, but it's like to slow down enough to have the time or to like the make the space enough to have the time to if I'm going to be the one doing the collaborative play with my child to like actually be able to be patient enough for it. Because like, I know someone's going to write me hate mail for this, but like, I hate Legos. I love, I love Legos <laughs> for my kids. I think it's like such a great developmental game, whatever. But, but like, it's for me to sit there and like do the Legos with them. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm pulling my hair out. So I, I got to be in the right headspace when yeah. my kids go during their time to play collaborative with me to, to, for me to sit down and go, okay, yes, you'd like to play Legos. Let's play Legos. <laughs> oh, I hear you. <laughs> and I think you can't always like force it, right? Like if right. you really as the parent are like, I've had a stressful day at work. I'm sort of like frazzled and mm -hmm. it might actually devolve at that point, right? Where yeah. it's like you're kind of end up in this like battle with your kids. At least it used to happen to me with my one who's 12 now. It's like she always wanted to play Paw Patrol, which was adorable and whatever but I had to play it the right way and yeah. there were times like, you know what if we start down this road which in theory should be like really great it's gonna like become a whole thing yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about that you're like this always turns into a fight between us I can't do it <laughs> not today <laughs> yeah exactly. no yeah. okay how about collaborative play with neighbors with friends because I think you know, one of the biggest concerns that parents have had with the pandemic is how this isolation is going to affect kids' social-emotional development over time. Where does independent play fit in here and collaborative play fit in here? Well, I think the sort of good news in a lot of the research is that independent play does serve some of the same purposes that collaborative play in terms does in terms of social development. So, mm -hmm. you know, being, creating sort of rules even if they're rules for yourself, mm -hmm. <laughs> you're mm -hmm. creating them, um, within that game, right? And again, this perspective taking an idea. So collaborative play is great with peers because you have to sort of figure out 
their perspective versus your perspective on things. But if you're providing children with toys that they can do that with, or even just, you know, sometimes kids will take what, like a box and be able to something. Um, So independent play can serve those purposes as well. And I think where collaborative play sort of has that other element to it is sort of figuring out who is setting, figuring out boundaries, right, between your need to lead and, you know, control the situation versus be sort of collaborative in your play with a peer. So I think that's where the collaborative piece, you're like, okay, you know, what, what, am I sort of not gaining, but you know, what, what does collaborative play with a peer offer that independent play doesn't? And I think that's one of them, but that's not to say that children won't learn that right. When we get back into this collaborative play space. So, you know, it's easy, I think, to worry as a parent about this so much, but again, I I hope we can take some of the guilt and stress off of uh, that experience by really, if you go to the research, the independent play is so productive for kids and, when we when they get back, they'll translate a lot of those skills into their collaborative play with their peers. So take a deep breath. I think it's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, I, a couple things with that. I think you're right. I think it's like the feed. I mean, I mean, I know you're right because of the research, but I think I, I see that as well playing out. So you know, it's the feedback part of it that they're missing, right? When they don't get the collaborative play, they don't get the peers being like, "Uh, I don't want to play that game," or you're being a little too harsh. I'm going to walk away now. I'm going to go play with somebody else. Like, like their, their parent is not able to be probably as harsh in a developmentally appropriate way as their peers are, I would assume. Right. Um, (laughs) So I think there's definitely that. I see that in my kids too. I'm like, no friend would allow you to say that to them. (laughs) (laughs) You have lost all of your social skills here. But, but I do think kids are resilient. And that just like their skin and their bones and everything else is more flexible, that um, that their brains are more flexible and that they will regain those skills as they come back. Um, and the other thing that I've seen as just a silver lining for, for families too, is especially in like these preteen years where um, I'm always coaching families a lot on how to be like untangled, especially from girls from these like more dramatic uh, yeah. uh you know, uh, situations with their friends and and how to stand up for themselves and show up for themselves and be like compassionately assertive with their friends, right? Um, That idea of like being kind, but saying, sorry, that's not going to work for me, or I'm not going to do that with you. And um, this year, it seems like has given kids a little bit of space away from that, like a, like a break from some of that more negative peer pressure that sometimes they were having. I totally agree, especially as the mom of a preteen girl. <laughs> the at first, I think it was really hard that break, um, mm-hmm. you know, just anecdotally. But then, once we had like a two or three week sort of, you know, I'm not happy. I can't see my friends. I think the breather really helped her in terms of yes, like sometimes we have to learn to be compassionate to ourselves and sort of I think take that forward then into these different situations that we're in and. Again, I think some of this independence, no matter what age it is, when they're doing their own thing, they're gaining some of that confidence because they're not hearing the negative chit chat around them, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think so too. Um, okay, I have a question too that maybe we don't know the answer yet, but I wonder if anyone's even doing studies. I think that would be interesting to listeners. Is anyone doing any studies or do we have any evidence yet or research yet around 
mask wearing and younger kids and their social emotional health? Because I get tons of questions about that. People want to know in daycare when the caregivers are giving or wearing masks, is that impacting the development of young kids? So I think there are, or I know there are a bunch of studies that are underway looking at that. Uh, I, I don't think there are any sort of large scale studies that have come out yet because it's so new. But I think, you know, what the research is leaning towards is that a clear mask is more beneficial for young kids than the mm -hmm. covered mask because kids learn so much, right, from actually watching your mouth and how you pronounce, produce the sounds and everything. Mm -hmm. So I definitely think a clear mask is probably going to come up as like the best option for especially young kids. But then there's also the nonverbal part that kids are learning that might actually translate into something really beneficial as they get older, I think. So the looking at people's eyes, try to gauge what they're showing through these nonverbal cues. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of work starting to come out from NYU on that, that it's maybe these children are actually going to take those skills to a level that we don't have, right? Because they've been forced yeah. to realize more. So it's interesting, you know, again, it, maybe there's, there's a silver lining to all this in some respect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like it, it sounds to me, it sounds similar to, you know, someone's hearing impaired, for example, and then they're using their other senses way more. I, I find that for sure that I have to concentrate and be, um, uh, mindful way more in my clinical practice with parents because whereas I could kind of come into the room and read a person's energy from their whole face and their body in terms of where they are you know if I go how's it going today and they're going like horrible I have a horrible stomach I'm like okay let me tone it down you know I, got, I come down from my like chipper self and uh and now I have to work harder at it to to read expressions and to see is this resonating is it not so maybe that's part of what this is I think so and I mean again totally anecdotally I have a 12 month old too and she has never seen anything but the mask and yeah. we were in the grocery store line and this woman behind me actually says to me and this was like right after I heard about this NYU work she's like you know she knows I'm smiling from my eyes and I was like you're right like she because that's all she's known right is you go outside you wear a mask and I do she does I was very cognizant of it after she said it I was like she does really look more at people's eyes, I think, than mm -hmm. my older daughter, because, you know, <laughs> grew up yeah. before all this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the other thing, too, is, again, not missing uh, the forest for the trees, that one thing we do know, and that there's a ton of research around, um, you could probably speak more to the specifics, but is around, you know, cell phone use um, at home with our kids and us hiding our, our faces or not responding in a emotionally uh, appropriately reactive way when our kids are trying to communicate with us and our babies. So we know even if your kid is at daycare and they have a caregiver that has a mask, probably still the most important thing is at home, you putting your phone down and not having something in the way of you communicating with them. Um, again, we're all going to use our cell phones, but being intentional about that probably is maybe more important or could be equally important, I would guess. Yeah, I agree. And it's hard as a parent, right? <laughs> <Sometimes> yeah. <laughs> I just want to get that one email out. You know? uh -huh. <laughs> so I think a lot of it goes back to, you know, Ed Tronic, who did these still face paradigms years, years ago, right? That yeah. if you smiled, then the young child would want to engage with you. But if you had this, this still face for an extended period of time, they just gave up, right? So yeah. I think it's the same thing with probably with these cell phones that or whatever you're distracted by that kids will really try to interact with you. But then there's a point at which right, like 
why would you try to bother? Yeah. <laughs> getting anything back from this. Um, so yes, I, I totally agree. Sounds like me trying to get my husband's attention when he's watching football. I'm like, hello, oh. I'm here the room. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> Forget it. I'm going somewhere else and doing something else. Obviously, you're not paying attention to me. <laughs> it's not worth it. Be uh, yes. <laughs> exactly. So you guys can think about that as an analogy. Um, I, I always try to give you guys a few tips from, from my own experience and things that work in my um, in my office in terms of being more available in terms of independent play, um, fostering that for your kids, and then also the collaborative play with your kids. The biggest thing that I have found, and um, and the productivity research backs us up, right, is um, trying to divide your time and have stuff on your schedule. So if you're able to say, okay, from you know hour seven a.m. to eight a.m. is when I'm going to have this meeting, and then on my schedule is eight to 10 a.m. that is my time that I'm at least available to my kid and that I'm not distracted, that you have kind of set chunks of time. The other is um, this idea of really trying to be there for your kids in the in-between times. So not having it be that you're only there when they're like really hurt, you know, really need you, super emotional, or when they're like doing amazing and performing and like wearing the cutest dress and you know singing frozen songs for you and you're like taking a billion pictures for their birthday right that you're <laughs> yeah <laughs> that you're just with them sometimes saying like is it cool if i hang in your room and lie on the floor while you do legos right yeah yeah totally. yeah so being there for the in between go ahead and i think that takes some of the pressure off right if you yeah can just be there you don't have to be doing like anything Right. You're just mm -hmm. and they're, you're kind of letting them know you're available, but not necessarily like, you know, feeling like you have to be questioning them or find out how their day was or. Right. Yep. Totally. I talk about laundry all the time. And on my uh, laundry day, um, I try to do it actually like folding laundry. This, there's no scientific study behind this, but I have found that it works like in my living room. So my kids are old enough now to not like jump on the piles of laundry and mess it up. But I have this task that I want to complete. And my kids are just like around doing, you know, reading books or doing art or whatever. And I'm just there without like headphones in or anything doing the laundry, which is a total mindless task to fold the laundry, you know, and put them on hangers and stuff. And I kind of just around. And so I'll find that like my kids will kind of come in and like chat with me and then they'll go do their own thing. And then I might need to help them with something and kind of come back to the laundry. But like just being it, taking up space in the physical center of our home and not needing anything from them, but still being able to be present and not irritated if I get distracted from it um, has been kind of a nice way for me actually to be more connected with my kids in a weird way. So um, that might be something to consider as well. Maybe there's some other task that, that you all have that's similar to that, that or, or is that, um, so that you can just be there for the in-between times for your kids. It's funny, like just bringing it back to the outside of home care. Our nanny for when, well, both my older one and now my younger one, mm -hmm. she do laundry on Thursdays. Um, and my older daughter to this day remembers that. And like, she, she loves to do laundry, which I hate doing laundry, but yeah. I think it's, we had that, time where she could just like be there with her she wasn't forced to do anything she just mm -hmm. had that space. um so i learned that from somebody who is not as like you know type a as i'm right <laughs> yeah exactly 
Totally. I mean, I think similarly, and this is lost, I think, on our kids, um, this generation, again, because of the, the screens that happen in the in the car. Um, but gosh, I just remember as a kid, like, and all the way through high school, driving around with my dad to like, Home Depot and to the grocery store and like just running errands with him. Yes. And having the radio on and there was nothing in particular that we had to talk about. But I just remember a lot of time with my dad, like, just available yeah. to me. I think it's so true. You know, living in the city, like, we used to never have, we would have, like, time in cabs, but it just didn't seem like mm-hmm. frazzled. But so I started driving because of the whole pandemic. And yeah. my 12-year-old loves that time. And, you know, she, uh, I don't know, it's a pediatrician if you approve of this, but, you know, yeah. she's front seat. <laughs> so yeah, 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 yeah. She's 12. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> you're solid. <laughs> and we, that's well. I learn actually about her day more than any other time because it's just I'm like hyper focused on the road thanks to New York City and you know not kind of asking her that much but she just will open up in a way that doesn't really happen at home and I think it's because she does feel that comfort of like I'm there I'm not going anywhere <laughs> yeah well and it's that parallel activity right I mean in the teen research there's that that that, that idea of you know, um, it's less confrontational for our teens. And I think sometimes for some of our kids that younger than that, that's true too. I know um, I have one daughter who loves to like look me in the face and tell me all about her day. And I have another daughter who really would love to not make eye contact the vast majority of the day and just talk to me like in a non, like it feels too overwhelming for us to like lock eyes and have this deep conversation. And so that parallel activity, walking or driving or biking next to each other or, you know, running, the two of us like to do that together, um, provide those opportunities where it's less um, less overwhelming for some kids and can allow them to open up a little more. I feel so. like we got more time like that. I, I feel like there's been a little bit of sort of pressure to, you know, always be doing something collaborative, right, with your yeah. child. That's not necessarily what the research meant, too. I think that's another one that's you know right. discussion for another day, but taken out of context sometimes, um, and makes parents feel that they have to do all this stuff when in reality, often it's just being there. <laughs> yeah, it's just being. I mean, I think really right. It's just being available and not being, not having times where you are like able to be responsive without it being a distraction to you or it being annoying to you or creating resentment in you that, you know, your kids are trying to get your your attention and saying, I want to show you this and that you're like, oh, awesome. Great. Yes. I'm all in for this for a second. You know, great. Show me the mermaid H2O intro that you think is so amazing. <laughs> like, you know, oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, I think parents are really going to take a lot from this. Thank you so much, Erin, for for being here today. You guys, go check out Scientific Mommy. Where can they find you on on the World Wide Web and on social? Well, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> and I like that you use World Wide Web. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> so we're at scientificmommy.com. And then on Instagram, we're um, just scientificmommy, the handle scientificmommy. Awesome. All right, you guys. Till next time. Great. Thank you so much. Hey, Mama. If you want more of the Modern Mommy Dog podcast, make sure that you click subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. We'd also be so honored if you shared with your friends and on social media with the hashtag Modern Mommy Dog. 
If you share about something that inspired you or that you learned from the podcast, we'll be sure to share it on our social media as well. Thanks for listening.